One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Long hot days in the shade of some big old tree. Making daisy chains and watching all the honeybees. Hello, Rachel de Thumple. <laughs> oh, it's so nice that you've come on the show. It's so lovely that you're here and I just can't wait to hear all about your fermentation at River Cottage and beyond and before and all the things that you do. It, it's just such a, a wonderful, a wonderful thing. So Rachel, on the podcast, we love to invite people who are interested in bees and beekeeping and the natural world, but we know you're particularly interested in fermentation. How did you get started with that? I came to it kind of through my grandmother who always pickled and fermented, but I also had gut health issues that I've used fermentation to address as well. And has it helped you? Massively. Yeah, it really does. But it's in its I mean, I guess what's great about it is it's not something you can just have a few spoonfuls of sauerkraut or a glass of kefir and then you're sorted. It's something you have to engage with constantly because it's like, um, you know, our, our gut microbiome is a bit like a, a pet that needs constant feeding and you can't just feed it once and expect it to thrive. You have to constantly um, give it a bit of love but that love also involves amazing taste pleasures and lots of you know fun flavors and experimentation and textures and it's really creative as well it's really good for you what happened how did you sort of land up at river cottage it's a really good question so i worked in food for about 20 years and quite early on in my food career i was the commissioning editor of Waitrose Food Illustrated, as it was titled then. And I interviewed Hugh about meat. I think he was doing his meat book. And I kept in touch. And I actually, I hadn't seen any of his programs. I knew of him, but I hadn't seen his programs. And also it was really early days in River Cottage. I mean, this was about 20 years ago. The year before last was the 20 year anniversary of the first series. And so um, he was early on in, in that journey as well. And I just kept in touch because he had a very similar ethos to to me. And I um, when I then moved on to work for Abel and Cole and um, I contacted him again because I had some questions about sort of ethics around game. And when I was at Abel and Cole, I I wore lots of hats. I've always kind of made up my own jobs, um, which has been great. And I always advise people to work out what they really love doing and then contact the people they admire the most and try to craft something. And I've had this career where I've been able to do that, which has been, I think, part luck, but I guess a little bit, you know, having a bit of (laughs) ballsiness to just, you know, not be shy and ask for what you want. Well, hats off to you. So when I left Abel and Cole, I contacted Hugh and said, you know what, I'm going freelance and I'd really love to do some work with you. And bless him, he sent me uh, an email from holiday in India and he said, (laughs) I'm on holiday and 
I will um, make a, an appointment to meet with you. Let's meet up when I'm back. And so mm -hmm. we met in one of the restaurants in Bristol that River College had at the time. And, and we just kind of chatted and he said, okay, well, these are your areas. I think you could, you know, really tap into and bring some life into River College. So the main thing was preserving initially. Wonderful. So yeah. I started doing the preserving classes. But when I crafted the course material for it, it started to be overtaken by fermentation, uh, yeah. which is the, the second oldest way of preserving. Did he move you down into the cellar then when you started doing fermentation? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what? I'm trying to get them to have a fermentation shed, which I think mm -hmm. just about talked them into. So oh. I'm hoping that can happen because at the moment I keep all, I have a cupboard. It's cute. Someone's made a really sweet little handwritten sign that says Rachel's cupboard. They haven't written anything else about it, like beware or anything. But yeah. sometimes, sometimes it does leak. And um, I went in there. I was away for two weeks and I came back this week on Monday and I opened it and there was yeah some puddles. But luckily I put everything on trays so it catches all the, the bubbling over bits. But, because um, there is a lot of, you know, fun in that as well, isn't there? I, I only know about it because my husband is a brewer. And oh, yes. um, he's been brewing his own beer for years now, for like 15 years. Amazing. And, you know, we have had a, quite a few accidents when things have been fermenting, like exploding bottles and, you yeah. know, down, all, luckily all down the cellar. You know, oh, we, even followed, <laughs> we even followed Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's um, elderflower champagne and we did mm. have a couple of explosions. Yeah, <laughs> but, definitely. But we also had some wonderful successes. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And I think that's what's part of the fun is because it's, yeah. it's live and it's unpredictable, just like life. Mm. And I think that's what I love about it. And every and it changes, but also when I'm teaching too, I always tell people. So yesterday I was actually teaching the preserves course, and Monday I was doing fermentation. But I said with preserving, if I gave you a jam recipe, so I always tell the students they get a recipe pack, and I say, okay, here's a recipe pack. Now um, put it away and don't look at it. I use it as a guide because I'm going to show you what you're looking for and how to change things because nature changes. So if you have a squash and you make a chutney with it. Um, and you use the exact same recipe, the squash is never, ever, ever going to be the same because it depends on when it's harvested, how much rainfall, the soil conditions, how long it's been stored. And there's so many variations that if you just stick rigidly to a recipe, then, you know, you, it's never going to work. And it's the same with fermentation. You know, you can leave it for exactly two weeks and, and burp it and do it all. But it's not always going to taste the same because the weather is going to be slightly different or the cabbage you use to make a sauerkraut is going to have a different water content or a different sort of makeup of uh, bacteria and yeast that will change the variation. It's the same, you know, with the, the brewing as well. And I've had plenty of um, exploding bottles. I usually wrap them in like lots of ta like old <laughs> towels and then put them in a like padded envelope or something padded so you don't have to hear oh. the explosion. We had a terrible one once that um, Tom made this lovely, uh, like it was like a stout or something and he gave it mm. to a friend. He had his own restaurant and he kept saying, oh, I'd love to try some of your beers. And then over Christmas, he, he took some of these beers and then he had one left about a year later over that Christmas, it exploded. Luckily, the family were in bed, but it was like in dis on display. It was on display in like oh, no. his front room and it could have been really, really bad. But um, do you think there's like a fear for people around fermentation and, and fermented food? 
I think there definitely is a fear, but I definitely think there's also this progression to where it's becoming more mainstream. And that's what's great about teaching the classes, because most people who come on the course are really new to it. They might have done one or two things. Some people have done nothing and they're completely new to it. And they do say my biggest worry is poisoning myself. And I felt the same. I was and my my grandmother always did it. I never asked her to teach me, which is um, a real shame. And she actually um, passed away right after I started teaching at River College. So I felt like I was like taking on the Mm. baton. I was really worried. And I think because I didn't have her guiding me and I was kind of finding my own way through it, um, I did, I was worried. I, I learned a lot actually from a few people. One is a lady called Annie Levy who lives in Wales and she has a food blog and she's just phenomenal. And another is Daphne Lambert, who is a nutritionist. And I reviewed one of her. She did a women's health course 20 years ago in um, this amazing house she had um, near Ledbury. And I um, did that and then returned to do her fermentation courses. And she gave me lots of confidence. But I think that's what most people want. And that's why they come on courses is to have someone tell them, I think, when I wrote the book for River Cottage on fermentation, I tried mm-hmm. to have that sort of tone that was at, as I was teaching and really reassuring and chatting. And I think a lot of people have said they've used the book without coming on any courses and they've had the confidence to go into it. But I think it's just having someone tell you, you're not going to poison yourself. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And if it goes wrong, this is what it looks like. Sometimes I let jars go off. And I'll bring out fuzzy, fuzzy sort of jars of sauerkraut. And I'll say, this is exactly why this has gone wrong. And this is what we're going to do to make sure it doesn't go wrong. And, I, you know, so I've learned um, how to control that. And I've also learned how to let it go wild so they can see what they don't want. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and giving them the reassurance that actually with, you know, fruit and veg, you'll know if it's off. It'll have some sort of horrible, fuzzy, <laughs> smelly mold in it. Well, you know, you won't want to to venture further. Um, there's not going to sure be any I sort of done. hidden. Yeah, <laughs> but there's not going to be any hidden nasties. But I've I've worked out some techniques too to really make it fail proof. But what when you sort of describe it like that, you know, when you think people are coming along and they they are worried and they are nervous and you know it's reminding me actually. I'm just thinking of beekeeping and when you sort of you know, you train people up and they obviously, because they're scared of getting stung, aren't they? They're not getting poisoned like the fermenting, but they're scared of getting stung. And that's their biggest fear, isn't it? You know, Absolutely, they've got to get yeah. over that to get to the next stage and, and become a beekeeper. I know you're a beekeeper as well as a fermenter, aren't you? Uh-huh. How did you find that? I mean, I find it utterly fascinating. Yeah. I absolutely love it. And, and how did you yeah, get into it? Actually, it was River Cottage because they asked me to do the beekeeping book. So I've been and I keep pushing it back so I can get another year under my belt. So and another year. And I've been working over the past few years now. I mean, it's been about four years with the beekeeper Mm -hmm. at River Cottage, um, who's been there for years. So now I'm setting up my own apiary. Oh, we had eight hives at the top of the farm. And Mm -hmm. now I've setting up a new site where there's space for it to go up to 12. Um, We have five new hives. So Mm -hmm. I've transferred the frames from the nukes to um, the new um, 
the new hives um, and we've got them all ready for winter. But yeah, I find it really thrilling. And and you're right about this being stung because the <laughs> photographer we're using for the book is a great friend of mine. And I've actually photographed several books with her over the years. Mm-hmm. And we do lots of other food shoots. So I write for the Simple Things magazine as well. And her photographs are beautiful and I really want to work with her. But I didn't actually consider the fact that she might be terrified of bees. Yeah. And she came into it with this kind of whimsical, magical sort of, uh, you know, idea of it. But the reality when you're, you know, standing <laughs> for like an hour in the apiary um, photographing, you know, um, we've we've had all sorts of funny um, <laughs> moments. Her poor son <laughs> has the most phenomenal head of floppy curly hair and Mm -hmm. I remember he wasn't even in the apiary but he was quite close and peeking in very curious and and not fearful at all and um, I remember he said oh there's a bee in my in my hair and I sort of was looking for it and he has so much hair I couldn't find it and then of course I saw the bee pulling itself out and the stinger attached to his scalp and um, bless him and then and then Ali got stung a couple of times when we were shooting there were times where I've been wearing the wrong clothing as well and I've been stung a few times so the wrong clothing is tights um skinny dark jeans not <laughs> obviously oh, you will no. know that's yeah, not a good I thing um, I and I just that. yeah and I remember I was wearing them because we only had the B suits with the tops and not the bottoms and I thought oh, I'll be yeah. fine and I got stung about 15 times uh, but I just kind of had to brave it because <laughs> Ali was so terrified of the bees and we were trying to get various photographs done and I just had to suck it up but oh, yeah, it's, God, it's quite God. funny. But I think what's lovely about beekeeping is, um, again, it's the variation. And everyone always says, and I'm definitely putting this at the beginning of the book, it's like bees don't read books. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or not that we know of, not, not ones that we've written. So every, yeah. you know, people, I know people that have kept bees their entire lives and they say, no, you know, they're always surprised. Every year brings something new that they oh, never yeah. come across. And there's something yeah. exciting. But I think life is like that, isn't it? I think that's what yeah. makes it interesting. If we it were really knew, what, knew what to expect all the time, we'd get really bored, wouldn't we? Yeah. And also, I think that the sort of forever learning stuff and even mm. just doing this podcast, you know, I've learned so much about bees and about plants, all sorts of people that have come to talk to us. It's been such a journey. 
So yeah. I've been experimenting with variations on black mead. So I've made it with organ grapes. Organ with- grapes. So, yeah, sounds not, like something organ, like or, or, or something from your rather. body. Yeah, yeah it does. I'm, I'm, organ um, grapes. Yeah, Ooh. so like the state or Oregon, but it's also it's a plant called Mahonia. It has the most fantastic yellow flowers in the winter yeah. that taste quite lemony, and then they get really fragrant as they start to turn to the grapes. In January, they smell phenomenal. And um, they're a winter forage for bees, actually. Bumblebees love them, don't they? Yeah. I didn't know they were edible, Rachel. Yeah, they are. The seeds are poisonous. But what I do is I add them to honey and I dilute it down uh, Mm. with water, maybe a bit of lemon juice. And then I just let it ferment and I strain it out and then I keep fermenting it. But I've done it with mulberries. So there's a beautiful mulberry tree right in the centre of the River Cottage kitchen garden. I've done it with blackberries, black currants. I do a lot of fermenting with honey, actually, which is quite a fun marriage between the beekeeping. I was doing this before I started doing the bee book, actually. Um, So I've actually included in both the fermentation book and I've done some new twists on the fermenting with honey for the bee book. Basically, I wanted to make a healthy alternative to jam. And I discovered that the Greeks and Romans were making a variation on marmalade by fermenting quince, actually, which um, is the first marmalade was made with quince. And it comes from the Portuguese word marmelo. Yeah. The Portuguese embraced making marmalade with quince as well. Oh, I didn't know that's where it came from. So that's like the quince jam. Yeah. How do you say it? Membrio. Yeah, (laughs) membrio. Yeah. Yeah. And then marmalade came from that. Wow. I didn't know. It is. Yeah, and they um the Greeks used to ferment whole quince. This is harder to do, so I've done it on a small scale. And my I I was living in London. I've moved now to the West Country, but I had a a flat in London, and I on a small scale was doing a couple of tiny quince in a a little jar of honey covered. You have mm-hmm. to use a lot of honey, but they would use big vats and put whole quince and cover it with honey, and then add grape must and rose water and ferment that for a year. And then spoon Ooh. the liquid off, and that would be more. So it's more like a mead, actually. Um, yeah. And so, if you from if you dilute honey by eighteen percent, um, mm. it will start to ferment. And the bees, and you'll know this. Um, and I think it's this is what I love about the bees: the amount of work that goes into this stuff that we most of us probably take for granted. But they, you know, worker bee will fan that honey off once they mm. take the nectar and spit it into the cell after they've swished it around their little mouths and mixed it with all their (laughs) enzymes and then they put it deposit it into the cell and then a worker bee will fan it for about an hour to drive off the excess moisture before they tap it so it doesn't ferment and then what I do when I'm teaching is I undo their work in a way by adding fruit (laughs) (laughs) but I'll um I just use um a small it's always do it on a small scale but I'll just get a small like 190 200 gram jam jar and I Mm -hmm. fill it about half to two-thirds full of fruit seasonal fruit so um, yesterday we actually grated um, an apple so we went and picked an apple from the orchard which is right opposite at River Cottage it's right opposite the apiary so there's this really lovely connection with the two spaces as well and Mm -hmm. everyone picked a small apple we grated it with the skin on into the jar and then we covered it in honey and 
in a very unscientific way that roughly dilutes it by 18%. Um, and it will start going a bit fizzy and the juices from the apple will dilute the honey and, and everything kind of mixes together. And it makes the most phenomenal sort of jammy compote. How long would you leave that for? So I've left ferments like that for up to a year at room temperature because honey is such a phenomenal preservative. And even when you're fermenting, it's another type of preserving. Both of them together just work a treat. If you're using a fruit that's really has a high moisture content, like strawberries, for instance, it'll dilute the honey more and it will turn to mead. So when you take the dilution of the honey up to 34% around there, the sugars will convert to alcohol, which isn't always a bad thing and I've done it with strawberries and elderflower and it's just absolutely gorgeous and with some English sparkling wine it makes the most phenomenal cocktail well it does sound better than the mead that Tom has been making it's, there's still some mead that been down our cellar for years now but um, I don't know how it's oh. going on but oh my oh, I'm god I'm sure it's amazing I don't know I don't know I, I tasted it I think about two years ago and it was a bit rank it sort of tasted a bit like mouldy old beeswax, you know, that's been left over the winter and is sort of at the end of the hive. It was a bit like yeah. that. And anyway, he said, I'm sure it'll be all right. I'll leave it for a few more years. Yeah, just to <laughs> let it mature a bit more. Yeah. But I butted in because you were saying about the Romans and anything about the Romans I'd love to hear about. So what were you going to say about the Romans? Because they loved oh, honey, yeah. didn't they? They did. And did they so like the, ferments? Well, they did. And so the version we made yesterday is a apple take on what they did. With They did it with quince. So they would grate the quince and then ferment it in honey in a very similar way, actually. And I do make it with quince as well. But it's I've done it with rhubarb. You can do it with chopped up chilies and make like a sweet chili jam. It's actually such a lovely way of marrying honey and fermentation. Um, but what I, what I was going to say is we were talking just about kind of touching just briefly on the mindfulness, I think, of mm-hmm. of both fermenting and beekeeping. But mm-hmm. I think it is a really amazing way of connecting you with, you know, with deeper with nature and, and yeah. you know, not just the nature of, um, <laughs> of change and the spontaneity, but, you know, just making you look a bit more and engaging with things because I think we're given so many instructions in our life too and people Mm. you know with recipes too if you look at Victorian recipes they're just a paragraph and it says mix up the ingredients and put it in the oven and there's no temperatures or no times because they were using things like agas or open fires you know I think outdoor cookery's a, a bit like that too where you're having to properly use your intuition and your instincts and engage your senses in every and in every form and I think beekeeping and um, fermenting both do that as well. Yeah, I mean, even the way that you've almost like fermented your world, haven't you? Your career has sort of grown and changed shape. And I think that it's so wonderful that we can learn all these skills and be um, validated. Is that the right word? Validated Mm. For what we know and what we've learned and what our grandmothers have taught us. And, you know, you've come from this grandmother who who did all this fermenting. And I know you had to learn it your own way, but, you know, you must have felt secure that you were wearing the right apron. It's an amazing journey, isn't it, that you've been on? It is. And I, but I think it's um, most people have that within them. I think it's a yeah. lot of these things are really like innate, almost primitive. It's the same with wild food as well. 
Mm-hmm. And when you start foraging, it's, it reawakens. And a lot of foragers like John Wright, who's our, you know, sort of key forager at River Cottage, he um, says the same thing. And I've worked with other foragers, uh, both collaborating, but also learning from them. Mm-hmm. And they always say something similar. It's just reawakening this primitive instinct that we have. And I think that's really missing from modern life. That, oh, And obviously gosh. that's why all these courses are popular, because once people tap into that, they yeah. realize the depth of what it's offering. It's not just offering a new skill or a new food to eat, um, but it's actually offering so much more that you can't even quantify, really. No, I mean, there's nothing more meditative than either beekeeping or turning over leaves, looking for mushrooms. And, you know, I mean, Mm. I love doing that. I, I just think, God, how long have I been out here now? And, you know, just turning over bits of, of, of old leaves and, I just feel so calm at the end of it. And you just think, God, I'm so actually so lucky that I don't want to earn millions and millions of pounds. I'm quite happy to spend a lot of my time, you know, like yourself, just doing these things that are innate in all of us. Absolutely. And so many people, I mean, I think, you know, people end up on this work treadmill too. And then to compensate, then they spend money to do something that is in that sort of line of meditation or, but it's not, you know, it's you can't actually replace that with the simple pleasure, like you say, of just going out and like turning over leaves or gathering some berries from a hedge. It just there's so much more to it. Um, you can't put a price on mm. what you get from that. What have you noticed in the, the time that you've been doing all this? What have you noticed about food? You know, the changes in farming or in uh, sustainability? And what have you sort of gathered and noticed? It seems there are two camps and they seem to almost polarise, whereas there's some things have become much better, like the amount of organic food that you can get. And there are loads more small producers and box schemes Mm. that you can tap into. I feel that's really evolved. And I mean, God, where I'm living now, because I am, I'm literally up the road from River Cottage, but I I, every day of the week, I could have the most amazing organic food even delivered to my house. There's from different little schemes as well and and amazing farms in London as well. But also there's this opposite side of things. Uh, And I see this a lot in the US too, I think. And that's where I grew up. And I think the US has both the best and the worst of food and uh, lots of other things. You know, there's people talking about you know pharma foods and just taking pills and and that used to be something that you just thought was something in a, a Willy Wonka you know um mm, the, you know yeah. Roald Dahl book and the Willy Wonka film where you replace meals with a, a sort of pill or a chewing gum but mm. these things are happening which is terrifying because it strips away so much and if you're looking at gut health as well um you know consuming food in a pill form you're not going to uh, sort of engage those digestive enzymes that the chewing process and you're going to take away the social element and the you know mental health benefits that gathering around the table brings um so there seems to be this in one side there's this amazing progression and the other side it seems like we're going <laughs> into this dark space I mean I hope mm. that that the sort of organic side of things um does win at the end of the day. But I think more and more people are asking questions, which I think is very positive and and also realizing that, you know, it is worthwhile to spend a bit more money and support people who do reflect the true cost of food that is Mm. where true sustainability lies. 
Yeah, I mean, River Cottage have just been so brilliant with all that, haven't they? They were, you know, right at the forefront of all that, you know, with the chickens and, you know, it was, they've just done they've just done so much, haven't they? Just going back to the fermenting, if you were going to say to somebody, look, fermenting, you know, is so important, what you're saying about the gut and what are the good things in fermented foods? And what is a simple thing that anybody could do just to start off an interest in fermenting something in their own kitchen? One thing would be sauerkraut because it's so good for you because it has all these layers of positive health attributes as well as all the amazing flavours. But classic sauerkraut, and I used to do all these variations on the course and I've gone back to the classic cabbage and salt and sometimes I'll add an apple and so you just shred the cabbage and grate an apple. So one cabbage, um, one apple uh, grated and add that to a bowl and then weigh it and then usually it's around a kilo give or take and then you calculate two grams of salt for every 100 grams of vegetable and fruit so for one kilo you would be looking at 20 grams of salt a good sea salt um, you don't want sort of table salt that has anti-caking additives and all sorts of other things but just a nice local sea salt which we have a number of brands now dotted all over the coast yeah. of um, the UK you can get Cornish sea salt we have Jurassic Coast sea salt Malton sea salt Anglo sea salt so there's lots of lovely salts around and you just mix that together until the salt's pretty much dissolved and you pack it as tightly as you can into a jar I just use my fist (laughs) punching it down gently um, or the back of a rolling pin or um, a pestle from a pestle and mortar and Mm -hmm. pack that in. Um, I always leave a centimetre at the top and I cover it with a cabbage leaf, press that down. And then I add a pinch of salt and enough water to come right to the top of the jar, which keeps everything airtight. And I seal the lid, leave it for two weeks. And what happens in that two week process is the natural yeast and bacteria, so lactobacillus, which is a bacteria that most people know how to say and understand because it's in yogurt, but Mm -hmm. it's just naturally occurring on the surface and inside the flesh of all fruit and vegetables. And that and a host of other good bacteria will start breaking down the natural sugars and starches Mm -hmm. within whatever you're fermenting. And as they break that down, they release lactic acid, which is where that lovely vinegary tang. So people always say, but you didn't add vinegar. No, that's Mm. where that's what happens is the lactic acid forms. But also as those starches and sugars are broken down, the availability of things like vitamin C, vitamin A, uh, vitamin B, they all the nutrients and minerals and vitamins increase. And so with cabbage, it's really rich in vitamin C as it is. But when you ferment it, you get double the amount of vitamin C when you consume it, which is fantastic. But also brassicas have this amazing thing called sulforified. I actually learned this from a scientist who was on one of my courses because we were making um, sauerkraut around. It was a Christmas themed fermenting Mm -hmm. course. We were making sauerkraut with Brussels sprouts, which are basically Ooh. mini cabbages. And we were chopping them up. That was a bit smelly. <laughs> oh, it was, but it's so delicious. Oh, yeah. Um, but all brassicas, broccoli, cauliflower, they release this thing when you eat it raw called sulforified. And when you're fermenting it, it's kind of like a, a way of cooking it without cooking it. So you're not destroying any of those raw nutritional benefits 
and you mm-hmm. get all of that. It basically really helps um, repair cell damage and our cells are being damaged by all sorts of environmental exposure. You know, it could be things in the water or pollution mm-hmm. or, you know, things we're eating. And so, you know, it's a brilliant way of really, you know, giving your body a, a really, you know, good boost of all sorts of things, helping your immune system. So that is one thing I highly recommend. And you can keep sauerkraut for a year so when you know the gardens bear and you know if the supermarkets go bare in any sort of <laughs> crisis you'll have a whole cupboard full of, of sauerkraut. I mean, that um, is wonderful. It is yeah I mean it's fascinating just how such a simple process can totally transform and amplify all the benefits you know it transforms the flavour. How did people understand that that was going to make them have more benefits. I think the initial, you know, fermenters would have just been thinking, okay, salt, I'm going to do this to, you know, keep this for the, you know, over the winter. And that's what, you know, there are traditions of people making sauerkraut Mm. this time of year when the garden's really abundant and tucking all that stuff away because they couldn't go to Sainsbury's and buy, you know, cabbage year round or, you know, strawberries year round. So they would really preserve all those ingredients. So they had something when there was no food. And then now we have the scientific knowledge to know what all the health benefits of that. But I think they just didn't know. But obviously, I think there were anecdotal evidence. So Captain Cook took Bats of sauerkraut when um, he was sailing so that his sailors wouldn't get scurvy. So, you know, it was all that vitamin C helping them um, when they couldn't get, you know, citrus fruits. I bet they were trumping a lot, though, on those, those boats. <laughs> well, to be honest, if your gut is in good nick, then actually uh-huh. you, you shouldn't be. It should, um, over time, it should balance itself out and you, know, you shouldn't have those um, ill effects. So that's one of the the problems is a lot of our, our, and I'll give you a sort of embarrassing anecdote, because when I first came into really, when I really got into fermenting, when I realized the massive health benefits to it was Mm -hmm. soon after I had my son. So he's going to be 15 next week. So around 15 years ago, I probably a year after he was born, I was feeling really dreadful and I'm really health conscious and I've always exercised, I do yoga, I well I'm you know I'm actually a bit boring in that respect I do like drinking wine and um, I'm not completely (laughs) pure I love chocolate Um, but on the whole you know I eat loads of fruit and veg and I look after myself and um, but I wasn't feeling great and I went to see a nutritionist and she did some gut health testing and I found out I had no good bacteria in my gut at all like nothing it was like a complete desert uh, with nothing in it And she just said, this is really shocking. And she said, now what you need to do is to do a really like boring diet, super boring, where she just could have like lean protein and lots of fruit and veg or not fruit. Actually, I couldn't even have fruit. It had too much sugar, lots of veg Mm -hmm. and just lean protein. So fish mostly and um, and some like chicken. I don't eat much meat. So it was mostly fish and some nuts. Mm And I did that for six weeks. And then she said, start introducing fermented foods. And a lot of people who've come on the course have gone into it. If they've come into fermenting through a health way, they've started with dairy kefir. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, dairy, there are lots of arguments against it in terms of health in general. But when it's fermented, you it does break down the lactose. And I was getting it from a a goat farmer in Wales. So it's Mm -hmm. called Chuckling Goat. 
and you can buy a three week course of it. So I um, was taking this and I loved the flavor of it. It just I loved it. I thought it was delicious. And I had traveled in Eastern Europe and I'd had kefir before that was at room temperature and it was quite murky. And um, and I actually at first I thought it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever had. And my, my son used to call it off yogurt. <laughs> and it does taste like that if you're new to it. But this stuff mm. from Chuckling Goat, I loved. So I was necking the stuff, having like you know, a pint of it at a time. And because I had no good bacteria in my gut, I, you know, had terrible trumping and bloating and <laughs> and it was horrible. And I found this woman who at Chuckling Goat and I said, you know, this is terrible. What's happening? She said, no, what's happening is your gut's being repopulated, but you're just doing it too quickly. It's like having an empty house and suddenly inviting a thousand people to have a party. You know, <laughs> it's just in a, a shell shock. And so just do it, do it slowly. And so I always tell people, you know, start if you're completely new, start with 100 to 150 milliliters of kefir or kombucha, which is a fermented tea or have a tablespoon or two of sauerkraut, um, you know, just before or with a meal and then build up and then start having, you know, something with every meal. Um, and that's what we used to do because we did preserve food and a lot of it was fermented and we would have it with most of our meals. You would have something fermented and that would help your digestive system and you were constantly looking after it. But we've just stopped looking after it. And we've started putting lots of stuff that actually feed the bad stuff, all the bad bacteria in our guts and sort of tip the balance. So all the refined sugars and starches and things that I actually do love. Um, I was in London last week um, having cardamom mm -hmm. buns in the morning, which is delicious, but um, not the best thing for, you know, your gut health. Um, but those things in balance are fine. But I think it's, yeah. you know, most of us are going too far in one direction and not having any sort of balance, which is clearly what happened to me with my desert um that's hopefully i'm gonna i actually haven't had a test since that time so i'm i'm about to order another one so rachel how can people come on one of your fermentation courses i know you do your preserves course as well where will they find you well, the best spot would be to um, look at River Cottage. So rivercottage.net. And mm -hmm. there's a little tab under courses for fermenting and preserving. And we've just launched an next level fermentation course. So we have some online courses and I have the sort of classic fermentation course I do in the cookery school um, in Devon at River College HQ online. And we were filming the next level fermentation for the online course, which will launch in a month or so. But I said, we have to do this in it on the farm as well and so on that one we're going to be making things like mead so we will be bringing Ooh. more honey into the four and we'll be doing miso as well and we'll be doing fermented nut cheeses which are a glorious thing and so yeah we're taking it to to the next level really um doing more with fermenting grains and pulses as well and the health benefits of those so yeah all on the river cottage site and we've i think we've just released another sort of realm of courses for next year and then there's obviously the book as well which um covers a lot of these things i think your way of life is really inspiring a lot of young people because my daughter who's 22 she's at uni and through lockdown her and a friend they just started fermenting everything they've become Amazing. like such fermenting experts they make their own kimchi they're fermenting things for a couple of weeks and they're you know they're, they're pickling stuff and preserving it I find it quite amazing. And, they're you know, they're only in their early 20s. They're well, not yeah, even out of university yet. 
what's great about it too is because preserving was seen as like just you know as sort of granny skill um mm. and now younger people are engaging with it now and realizing that actually they can fit it into their working life too they don't have to be you know retired and it's it's something you know that is for everybody and you can fit into your life and it's delicious to do so and also you know you save a lot of money too if you're making your own and then you can get really creative as well and add mm. all sorts of funky ingredients and, and make different flavor sort of combinations so yeah it's great and i've had a lot of um i've had a lot of younger people coming on the course and bringing their parents who are completely mis- mystified <laughs> about the whole thing and they want to figure out what their son or daughter have been doing and want to learn it as well so I've had over the past couple of weeks I've had quite a few um sort of mother and son or mother and daughter or father and mother and daughter combinations coming to the course which is really lovely to see great Christmas presents in order I think that could be brilliant couldn't it and just Absolutely. just to finish Rachel How are the bees at River Cottage and are you getting ready to put them to bed for the winter? Yeah, I mean, we pretty much have put them to bed. So we gave them a couple of added feeds, but we... um, they, they actually have really healthy stores of honey. So when we put the new colonies and the new hives... The frames were laden with honey. So they're very happy, healthy colonies. And yeah, I'm really excited. So we're going to move them down to the new apiary. Both are framed by gorse and the gorse Mm -hmm. is just coming out now at the moment. And um, we're going to take them down to the new apiary in January and then, yeah, see how they're doing as the weather warms up and have a whole year ahead. So I have delayed the book Mm -hmm. another year Mm -hmm. just to have another year of colour and experience and adventure that I can weave into the narrative and add that extra sort of layer to everything I put into it. But yeah, I'm so excited for it to come back into full swing. It's such a joyous thing to do. Well, good luck with it all. And I really hope that me and Jane can come down to River Cottage to see you. Oh, please. Oh, that would be so amazing. Please, please do. That would be wonderful. Oh, thank you so much, Rachel. Rachel de Sample. Hooray! Thank you, Esther. is written and created by Esther Coles and Jane Horrocks. It is produced by Claire Broughton, Andy Goddard and John Wakefield and partly recorded at The Hives on my allotment near Crouch End in London. Our title music is Sweet Nothing by Amy May Ellis and Will Cookson. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Queen Bees Pod for pictures and videos from The Hive. Queen Bees is a hat-trick podcast. If you-